listeners, welcome back. It's time for another episode of Maya, My Yoga Audio. I'm your host, Megan Morgan, and today we have the distinct pleasure of welcoming Julia Washington, a California-based writer, producer, podcast host, and social media manager. Julia is biracial, and she's a solo mom who loves to read, watch television and movies, and has a subscription to The New Yorker, and she'll give you unsolicited book, movie, and TV recommendations. She's also been known to give tips and tricks and social media strategy to help folks get over that creator's block slump. Pop Culture Makes Me Jealous, her podcast, examines the impact that pop culture has had on her life as a biracial woman past and present. She was once told not everything is about race or gender, but this show begs to differ, especially when it comes to pop culture. We met last month at the start of the Future Thought Leader with Emily, another guest who's been on the Maya podcast before, and we hit it off and connected almost instantly. So, Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for making the time to be here today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> I feel like you're a relative, yes. of, uh, you know, of a long lost family member that I've discovered. We have so much in common. Yeah, I love that. I feel the same, actually. I love that. I can't Our wait friend, until we can like socialize in person. Right? You're halfway to where my youngest daughter is going to school right now. So I'm like, we're just going to have to like make a date one of the times yes. I'm going down to see her and, and hang out with you as well. So I'd love it if you would tell our listeners a bit more um, about you as a person and also kind of how that informs your podcast. I want to let the listeners know I listened to about three episodes in this past week. And I was kind of like, how's this going to work? Because there's like stuff about Gossip Girl and Black Widow. And then there was Malcolm Jamal Warner. And then there was stuff, you know, from because I'm about 10 years older than you, I think. So there's definitely stuff from my generation that you talk about with pop culture, but then also the most current things. And I was like, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> and so there was so much that we could connect on. So tell us about your life and what informed you to launch and lead this podcast that is so much fun. Oh, I appreciate you saying that about my podcast. So as you mentioned, born and raised in California, but where I reside is specifically in the Central Valley, and it is very still much an agricultural community. And my parents are one of like very few interracial couples that would be consistent of a black person and a white person mm -hmm. and so being here in the central valley you still have like the california stuff right because there's the beach and you have a connection to southern california sort of but that just wasn't our story in the sense of like my grandparents were very much rooted in being country mm -hmm. you know they bought a farm east of modesto so we had this interesting upbringing of where we sort of had a pseudo city life because Modesto is not really a city, but it's a big, small town or it's a, yeah, a big, small town. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then we could escape to the country where, you know, you had this really isolated experience in the sense of like, you have your focused family. We got to play in the almond orchards. We got to just be free in the way that you can't be free in a city. But also television and movies were a huge part of growing up. My grandfather loved TV. My dad loves TV. We had family film night. And then as I got older and into high school, junior high, high school, we went to private religious school for elementary. And so when I finally got into public school, it was just kind of like, wait a minute. <laughs> you guys didn't grow up watching the Jeffersons? Like what? <laughs> like who doesn't watch reruns of 227? I don't understand. The other side of that coin, though, is we still had a... Um, TGIF, I forgot what the name was for a second, you know, oh, on Friday yeah. nights with um on ABC and it was Full House and Family Matters and Step by Step and all these different types of shows. And I started realizing like, oh, my family's not like everybody else's. And I think subconsciously I knew that, but because my parents had been in the community for so long, as long as they had been, and my dad worked in law enforcement my entire life that he was also pretty prominent figure because there were very few black men working in mm -hmm. law enforcement at the time. And so we were very decently known in our small little social circle. So when we move out of that social circle, get into public school, it's like, oh, you're really different. Like, are you sure that's your dad? What? Oh, yeah. <laughs> who, says, who says that to a 13 year old? That's just mean. 
And so pop culture, we all related around that, you know, we could always relate to somebody from a TV show, especially pre-streaming, right? You know, everyone gathered mm-hmm. around the TV Thursday night for whatever show was the big blockbuster for NBC in that time. So that was like my opportunity to feel normal with people, to feel normal in the community, because we could all talk about friends. We could all talk about Seinfeld. We could all talk about Full House. We could all talk about the Huxtables. Like that was a big one. And so in adulthood, getting older, I feel with the way that the world is moving and changing, I feel lonelier and lonelier. So I think that's one reason why it was really exciting to meet you because we had so many similarities, but also I'm watching television differently. I'm seeing it through a different lens. I'm seeing it as not just a solo mom, but a woman who struggles with her racial identity weekly as a, you know, a woman who's coming of age in a new sense because my child is on the verge of going to college soon. So what does that mean? I had a baby really young. So what does that mean? And so now I kind of can see how all of these shows influenced my life, how all these movies influenced my life and who that's helped me become. And do I even like it? So that's part of the conversations I think that we have on pop culture makes me jealous because I need to explore that. And I need to explore that with people who don't always think like me. Yeah. One of the things that I loved so much, and and it's partly from what you just said and partly from what I heard in the Malcolm Jamal Warner episode and about all about the Cosby show and the Huxtables. And I realized me being 10 years older. So that show, I I think it debuted when I was actually 10. I think I was nine. 1984. Yeah. Yeah. So I was 10. And we would go to school the next day. And I think you're right. I think it was Thursday nights. It was Tuesday night or Thursday night. And we'd go to school the next day, and that's all we would talk about all day at school. Amongst kids, even some of the teachers, we'd go on and on about the college. And did you see you in this? And we don't do that anymore, or at least mm-hmm. I don't. Like, I'll get together with certain friends, like, oh, did you see this? Did you like this? But we're not having these long, nuanced conversations about it anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like we're, we're absorbing so much information. We're not having those conversations. And then my favorite part about all the episodes I've listened to so far you were not talking for like 55 minutes about the show. It ends up, it's like, oh, there was this one scene yeah. and this is how it read to me. And it made me think of this time in my family or in yeah. my life and where you and your guest go back and forth about how that plays out in the real world and mm-hmm. what that means for black women today, what that means for black men today, or what does that say about the state of, you know, X, Y, Z. And that was my favorite part. I was like, Oh, I need to rewind that part. Right. Cause I'd like get distracted and then come back to them. Like, no, they're getting into something really good right now. And I feel like that comes about naturally. Like that's part of your love for doing this because it stimulates, it percolates those conversations about really important issues. And it might seem like TV or you work in social media just as I do. And people trivialize that a lot and say like, oh, like I don't watch TV or I don't do social media. I don't do this and that. But it is such a launching pad for important discussion. Absolutely. Pop culture helps us. It gives us language that we didn't know we needed, especially when we're in the margins. You know, I didn't know how to explain to people what it was like to be. You speak of the Malcolm Jamal Warner episode. That was one of my favorite episodes ever to do because, you know, growing up, we had this polished family. Right. And so like the black culture that's demonstrated for my generation is very much there's like a hip hop era and there's this R&B touch to it. But there's like this sort of um, everybody's poor. Right. Everybody who's black is poor. And, you know, sure, we dress up on Sunday for church, but like we weren't allowed out of the house any day of the week in anything less than our best if we were Mm -hmm. at my grandma's house. If we're going to play out in the dirt fields, sure, put on play clothes, but you're going to come in the house, you're going to wash your hands in the, in the bathroom, not the kitchen sink, because that's gross, cross-contamination, and you're going to clean up and you're going to wear nice clothes, because we could go to the grocery store today and you're not going to look a mess. And so it wasn't until I got older where I could say, like, I confidently feel this way, and I can say that it comes from this television show. They gave me that language to understand it. And for the things I don't understand, again, TV breaks it down. Movies break it down. It creates space for us to explore complicated concepts and themes without having to be worried about being shut down in a conversation. So it's opening up that door for that conversation because then we can talk about, well, I don't like that in Black Widow, she was wearing all white or that they made this joke about how she doesn't have a uterus. And then we can kind of unpack further from there. And it's still safe because we're talking about things that aren't 
that aren't in the real world, but they are in the real world. <laughs> yeah, because something fueled that idea. Like when I watch something kind of messed up, like a psychological thriller, or I can't do gory anymore, but yeah. I like thrillers. I like things that make me think. And I'm just like, who thought of that? And what does that say about us as a culture? Like, then I want to know the person who wrote the story or mm -hmm. the producer that went, you know, heard it and went after it and, and things like that. And it does tell us you know, psychologically and culturally a lot about us because mm -hmm. of that. So where did, when did this podcast launch and what was kind of your like, okay, I'm going to do this. Like what was the moment or moments uh, leading up to it? We launched in April of 2021. A lot of moments led up to it. About a year and a half ago in my day job, I had gone to a training that was like, hey, if you're not in audio marketing, you're going to get left behind. So I started researching, you know, podcasting more. I didn't really listen to podcasts. I wasn't really into the audio sounds, audiobooks, things like that. That wasn't really my jam. So then I kind of fell down this rabbit hole of what you can do with audio marketing. And I thought, man, this is, yeah, we got to get on this because it's great. This is a great platform. This is an amazing tool that we need to be using. And then the pandemic hit and everything got put on hold. But that information didn't get put on hold. And then the world decided to implode even further in the summer of 2021. And I really felt alone. I really felt like it's always been clear to me that I live in a very predominantly white community and little microaggressions happen every day. And it's just kind of like one of those things where you're like, OK, well, I live with it because here's why. But then summer of 2021 happened and I was like, I don't think I can do this anymore. I need to talk to people who are going to understand and not every person on either side of my identity is going to fully understand. I need to accept that and be okay with that. But I also need to like be somewhere where we can talk about these things because I'm hurting and I need a community. So all of that to say this information from audio marketing rabbit hole the desire to find a community. And then our mutual friend, Tammy, I called mm -hmm. her up one day and I said, hey, can I have some of your time? Because I have questions about podcasting. And she took the time. I mean, she spent a lot of time with me just having that conversation to hammer out my idea. And then she gave me a deadline. She's like, you need to launch by this day. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure, Tammy. Oh. I feel very much like I'm scared. And she's like, you could do it. Like, I believe nice. you. What? And I did. She uh, apparently I'm very goal driven when somebody else gives me the deadline. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> and it has kind of unearthed some people that have maybe an ambiguous racial identity where I've received direct messages from folks who have said things like, thank you so much for this particular episode. I identified with insert thing here. And that means the world to me because it makes me know that it lets me know that I'm not alone. I'm not by myself in my feels thinking that I'm a complete outsider. There are other outsiders too. <laughs> yeah, there's such a spectrum of identity. And I, I don't remember if it was the Malcolm Jamal Warner episode or another one, but you brought up Rashida Jones, Quincy oh. Jones and um, yes. Peggy, um, Peggy Lipton. Thank you. I was going to say Templeton, but it's not that. <laughs> Peggy Lipton's daughter who, you know, when we talk about phenotypes, right? Like people see her on the street, they might not probably wouldn't guess that she mm -hmm. has one black parent and one white parent. I know that's something you run into a lot. And I'd say, you know, I have a mixed racial heritage as well. It just depends on how I wear my hair yes. and like where I am in the world, right? If I'm in yep. like a small town in Canada, people are kind of like, so are you Italian or Jewish <laughs> or what I like? There's there's another episode too. Oh, is where you're talking about mixed dish and blackish. Oh, yeah. And like the ways that people approach it say like, what are you? That's always the Ugh, the phrase that makes everybody cringe, cringe. like, oh, do you have a, and that same phrase too? do you have a little bit of black in you mm -hmm. like that part? And so I've I've experienced the spectrum of as well of people accusing me of appropriating black culture when I got my hair braided, mm -hmm. um, totally thinking that I was white when I was dating my black boyfriend, now my husband. And it was just like because our appearances are he's darker than I am. So they in comparison, I guess I yeah. look white to them or <laughs> whatever it is. And so I'm. I get kind of used to it, but then you don't because when it comes up again, you're kind of just like, oh, and here we are again. And I loved one of the things that you said was, so what are we supposed to do? And it was like, well, if it comes up, you're meeting somebody for the first time or the first few times. And if it comes up organically and the person tells you that, cool. But like you don't meet somebody and be like, what are you? <laughs> it's just so, oh. Because then you're just like, wait a minute. 
how am I supposed to answer that? I don't understand. And being asked that at the age of like 10, that's already, you're entering already, you're starting to enter in that phase of like, life's confusing. I've got hormones happening. What's going on? And it just, we just got to stop asking that question. Mm -hmm. And by we, I don't mean us. I mean, everybody else. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and the results of, I found the results of the the U.S. census Mm -hmm. that they just released. I think it was a week or two ago now and saying for the first time like that, it's actually the mixed category. It's like the largest it's ever been. But I'm like, but before there was a mixed category, you know, what did that mean? Like, I feel like it's true. There are yeah. more mixed people than ever, but they can also identify as such now. Whereas 20 years ago, like two censuses ago, I don't think that they could. You had to just choose one. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering, because I know you have you have a brother and a sister, mm-hmm. right? And I have a, both an older brother and an older sister. And when we're together, we, we met for the first time. I'm adopted. It's a whole long story. Um, but we met for the first time about 15 years ago and so while we do look alike we do like distinctly look you know different Mm -hmm. phenotypically and I know several families I have two three really close friends where they have the exact same set of parents and each of them phenotypically look very different like some look distinctly like you can tell they're mixed or that they have black in them I'm putting my (laughs) fingers in quotation marks others have like blonde straight hair and blue eyes and they're from the same parents. And I'm curious what that's been like in your experience in your family with other people that you know in that same situation. Nobody ever knows that my siblings are my siblings unless, and I post about them on Instagram. They're like, oh, I know your brother. I didn't know you were related. Cause I, my, <laughs> my joke is, is that, you know, the oldest one to the youngest one, it goes from dark to light. Like I'm the light oh, of the one. Interesting. <laughs> And so my brother got, you know, we have we we have a grandparent on either side that had light eyes. So my brother got the green eyes. He's got Granny's green eyes, and he and I both had blondish hair growing up. And I had very curly, soft, curly hair, you know. But facial features wise, people thought my brother and sister were twins because they looked so similar with the bone structure and everything. Mm-hmm. My sister got what we refer to as the 4C hair, oh. um, mm-hmm. and my brother and I do not, <laughs> but uh-huh. we all have curlyish hair, and so it's interesting when you see us all together because people don't always recognize that we're related, but here's a funny story. When I was in senior in high school, and if my mother listens to this, I'm outing myself, but you know what? I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a grown-ass woman. I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> We were looking at universities up in um, Portland because at the time I thought I might go away for college. I did not. Spoiler alert. Um, And so I was looking at Portland State University because Portland seemed attractive to me. I didn't really know the full (laughs) history of Oregon at the time, mind you. And so we went for a weekend because they had like an open house thing. My brother and I went. Mm -hmm. He had a friend that lived up there. And so Oregon's clearly different than California. So I borrowed my sister's ID for when we wanted to like go out and do stuff. She's five years older than I am. Okay. Uh So this puts it at, I was 17. So do the math. Nobody questioned it. Everyone accepted wherever we went, where we needed to show proof of ID. Nobody questioned it. And I didn't drive at the time. So I didn't have ID personally because I didn't have a California state. I was 17. I didn't have a state ID. I didn't have a driver license. So it was just kind of like, 20 years ago, we could have passed as the same person, but you know, now it's like, you look at us, I think we look very different. Yeah. I'm curious. And I want to, it's a two part question. How, when you were growing up and maybe even now, did your parents deal with what, or not deal with, with what questions from the outside of your family would be about who you are and who your family is and the whole, what are you thing? And now as a mom yourself, with a son, you know, about to graduate into the college world, how you deal with these sorts of questions and situations with him. To answer the second part first, we have always had open dialogue in our house about, in my house, about race and racial identity. My dad very much is obviously a black man, and he and my son do not look like they could be related if you are just cursory glance at them. So we had always from the beginning and we've had experiences too where people just assumed that a different mixed race child belonged to my parents when they would pick him up from school 
Those are fun. Um, so that's always been a conversation. And when he got a little bit older, I think he was in fourth grade, somebody, he came home and was like, somebody told this joke. And it was a very racially prejudiced joke towards black people. And I was like, literally said to him, welcome to the world of being a doppelganger or <laughs> a double agent where no one's going to know that you have a connection to black culture and, you know, roots in being black and they're just going to assume you're a safe person to say all these horrible racially prejudiced things too. He was 10. So, you know, he's older than what we were when we had to have those conversations because I think my parents didn't fully sit us down and be like, "Hey, here's the talk as we see so often represented in pop culture and in specifically black pop culture." But they did definitely like make it so we knew when we leave the area People could stare. There could be questions. There could be confusion. Because my dad worked in law enforcement and the department in the county was so small at the time, it was very clear, like, oh, your last name's Washington. If we were to get pulled over, I know your dad or something to that effect. So there was a little bit of, well, a lot of name recognition in that regard. So there was a veiled safety in our county. And very easily, when we went into another county, north or south, the same recognition may not exist. So it was very much like mm -hmm. we need to be mindful of the fact that we're not going to know as many people up there. In law enforcement, they do kind of know everybody. But if you get like a new guy, especially as my dad started promoting and not doing patrol as much and then, you know, closer to his retirement. And now we're, he's been retired for quite some time. So it's very rare to find somebody who has who recognizes his name. But in the early days, it was like, okay, when you leave the county, you have to be mindful. Like, not everyone's going to know who your dad is. You need to be respectful. There could be questions. There could be people staring. They're not going to understand that kind of stuff. So it was very not casual in the sense, but they brought the conversations in when they felt it was necessary. Yeah. No, but it's good. You felt like you had support, like you had backup behind yeah. you like when you went yeah. home and out into the world. Yeah, it was very much like, this is where you make sense. This is the house where you make sense. And I actually kind of am now in this phase of like panic of when my parents are in their 70s now. And so when people in their generation start dying, I'm the person who's like panic messaging my best friend of like, oh my God, did you see the gal from the Supremes died? Like she's a year younger than my dad. I'm scared. And she, my friend's like, your dad's fine. He, there's like, it's going to be okay. You know, she's very comforting, but because they're my safety net and that's where I go to reset because there's nowhere else I can really reset. I mean, I can reset in my own, in my own house, but it's not the same because my parents are where I came from. So there's a reset that happens with them that I can feel like, okay, I'm not, I'm not some weird circus animal. Yeah. We make sense. Yeah. <laughs> we, we are allowed sense. to make sense. <laughs> and this is what this is the reset button to be like, honey, you make sense. I mean, I'm a little eccentric and I have a big personality. So sometimes my mother's like, I don't know where you came from, but you make sense. That alone, like you make sense, we make sense is so validating because I think the experience so many of us have going out into the world is that you're this like anomaly. And, mm -hmm. you know, I hesitate to I'm not sure if you've ever seen my hair down or out, really. It's not really down. It goes out where people have, like, stopped me on the street and have taken pictures. Like, people are obviously tourists or asked to have their picture taken with me because of my hair. And it, it becomes this, like, other thing, you know, that, that I, I want to hide. Even though I love it and I'm, I'm proud of it now, it's taken a yeah. lifetime, like, 40 years <laughs> to get to that point. But that whole notion of making sense in this place or making sense in this family. And I'm curious what your, cause there's so many, I, and I have to catch up on all of them. There's so many shows and movies that you go over on your podcast that spark these larger discussions. What are some of the top contenders for like pivotal moments in your life where you would have watched them and been like, Oh, like I get, cause I'm thinking you had such a solid upbringing at home, but we all look for that external validation what are some of the ones that externally you were just like yes this was something I needed to see and I need to talk to other people about so I went to this summer arts program this summer after my senior year mm -hmm. and in that intensive creative writing program I met the so in let me backtrack a little bit I'm, I apologize I'm a terrible storyteller sometimes we <laughs> okay. in Modesto don't have a large in Stanislaus County we don't have a large African-American population depending on which census you look up it can be anywhere from two percent to eight percent black depending on which census you're reading at what point 
And so growing up, there was like one other family that was also biracial, but like our school didn't have a lot of black folks. Like we did not have a lot of exposure. Like I said, one other family that was also black parent, white parent, and that's literally it in the vicinity. So I go to this intensive art program. I think it was four weeks long. It's an amazing program for high school students. And I'm in the creating writing department and there's these twins that walk in and we're having this conversation and I don't even know how it comes up. And they're like, oh yeah, our dad's black too. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Can you say that again? Are we best friends now? (laughs) Best friends? And they have a white mom. And I was like, you also have a white mom? Like, oh my gosh. Because the the other family in town, it was black mom, white dad. So it's, you know, it's relatable, but still Mm -hmm. you're like, it's different when you have a, when your mother is white, it's a totally different biracial experience, Mm -hmm. totally different levels of nurturing, totally different connection to culture. And so that was like the moment where I was like, there's others of us. (laughs) Oh my gosh. How am I 18 years old and just now finding this out? (laughs) And that was the best feeling and made me want to go back to LA forever and ever and ever again. And I'm probably the only person north of the grapevine who actually has an affection for Los Angeles. (laughs) That's probably why. Yeah, that's a pivotal moment. Like I was so astounded actually that's probably the right word when you were talking about growing up watching the jeffersons and oh yeah the huxtables well the cosby show but the huxtable family and i'm like i watch those shows like i feel like but i also grew up with my grandparents mm-hmm. who are like one's passed away and one's down in her night she's nearly 100 so wow. my parents would have actually been had they lived the same age as your parents now so i have this fantasy when i meet other mixed race people who grew up in their nuclear you know biological family i'm like what was it like you know it's this rose-colored vision and it wouldn't have been that right because life never is but i always want to know you know how other people experience life and what shows pivoted things for them and the cosby show definitely was one for me a different world Oh my God. I love a different world. Denise, Denise was like my validation, another validation because she's mixed race, right? Um, Lisa Bonet. And Uh so it was just kind of like, cause she was the lightest daughter on the show. And for the longest time, I didn't understand that. I didn't, cause you don't understand, right? You don't understand these things when you're a child sometimes. And then at one point, I think my aunt said something about her being like, um, mixed. And I was like, oh my gosh. Is that why she's my favorite? <laughs> <laughs> There's something you're you're so right. She was my favorite too because I could always seem to identify with her the most. And like even like when her and Lenny Kravitz got together, oh I was my like, gosh, dream couple. And then when they divorced, I was like, eh. But then now she's with Jason Momoa, so I'm like, that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> we can deal with we'll, that. We'll happily take Jason Momoa. I mean, they're both beautiful men, and they have just the health. It appears to have the most healthy relationship with each other. And I love that for her. Yeah. Or with Fresh Prince. I just saw, I don't know, you grew up, Ooh, you grew up watching I love Fresh, Fresh Prince, Prince. Oh my gosh. So that whole story when like his first wife, Cherie and his son, and then when they split and then he was with Jada yeah. and how they had to form their really same thing. It's like, it wasn't easy, but they, you know, they figured they did it. it out, yeah. like had a co-parent together. And I'm like, look at you out here all just like showing us how it needs to be done. And I feel like there's not, we hear about it more and more now, but it's not as common. I feel like when I was growing up, it was just like people split and it was just contentious. It was was about race, but it was also about relationships and families and you know how you can make good of something that kind of went wrong. Yeah. I wanted to switch tracks for a moment to kind of bring in what you do with with social media because we also have that in common and what are some of the like the trends and things you're seeing now so when I was in grad school I was studying photography and they were like all about you know photography and digital media is the great equalizer for Mm -hmm. for all races because most everybody I don't want to say everybody because it's not true but most everybody has access to technology now, right? Because you can take a selfie with the phone, you can Mm -hmm. promote, you can be famous on Instagram for like who you are, but no other reason at all. (laughs) But I'm curious if it really is the great equalizer. I kind of feel like certain accounts are still viral Mm -hmm. more so than other accounts. And I know 
the events of last year, you know, what happened with George Floyd and for many years before that. And Mm -hmm. since then, yes, people have been highlighting accounts of color, women of color, things that are more culturally aware, but I still sort of feel like the dominating thread in Mm -hmm. our culture isn't that we're, you know, Mm -hmm. we're getting there and our our demographics and the census results will continue to affect that. But I'm kind of curious your take on that with how you work in social media and in in your life and how that relates to pop culture makes me jealous and all that good stuff. Social media is a very interesting beast. And my favorite thing to tell people whenever they want their nephew to help me (laughs) is just because they're on social doesn't mean they know how to do social. And so what that means is it's very different for everybody. Yes, we can have people who have millions of followers, but you and I have no idea who they are because they're not being, it's a very much, we are the subjects. Instagram and Facebook has created this platform where we're the commodity now. And so if I don't like, for example, (laughs) if you were to hop into my Instagram today to see what what Instagram decided to feed me, I'm going to be very candid right now. It's going to be a lot of Chris Evans and it's going to be a lot of dogs because that's like, they've decided that that's my personality. So that's what they're going to show me. So whenever I'm trying to branch out and find something new, it can be really easy or it can be really hard depending on what that topic is. And we did see, I think it was the tail end of last year or what is time anymore, right? Like I can't remember specifically, (laughs) but recently within the last two years, we did see Instagram sort of de-emphasize black creators. And, and it was really, in my mind, that's really harmful because it's a platform that is easily accessible for most people, the majority of people. And now you have people who are pouring in their heart and souls and doing something, business, content creator, whatever. And now you've, de-emphasized their page because of why what's the reason here and it felt racially motivated but you know you're never going to get a comment from the institution themselves and then there's also other areas too like I work for a public agency the public agencies certain types of public agencies it's called shadow banning so Instagram's going to be like we're not going to feed your content you know to people's feeds today or whenever and you're just kind of like no but just because the type of public agency this is doesn't mean that this information isn't important because we no longer communicate the way that we used to you know 10 years ago you sent out a press release you did an email blast you maybe had a press conference if something major happened but like I don't know any public agency other than really small ones that are still sending out press releases they're posting everything on their social channels and so that's also a limitation because again not everybody's going to be on Facebook not everyone's on Instagram not everyone's on Twitter so it's just can we stop being your commodity and let us just communicate and create community Mm-hmm. It would be really nice. The shadow banning one is probably the one that I struggle with the most because it doesn't seem to affect uh, the major dominant culture. Yeah. That's what I'm, I'm curious about when, because when we go back to that and even be honest about something in terms of the podcast with we're on mm-hmm. episode, we're in our thirties now. I think this one will be 32 <laughs> or 33 of <laughs> similar to you just over a year, actually not quite a year in October. It will be a year, but we started in August of last year, the episodes that, and I've, I've really made a concerted effort to profile women of color. But also women who are not, you know, particularly of color, but that I consider woke and are doing great work in the community. It is typically those women who are, are not of color that those episodes get the most plays, get the most listens, Isn't that get the most shares. And yeah. I'm like, it is what it is because I, I love those women. So I'm not, I don't want to take away from that right. experience and the value they bring to the show. But there's also something in the back of my mind that's telling me like, but why is that? You know, why is this one? And maybe is it because they just have more reach? Maybe they have a newsletter. Maybe they have more followers and it's just organically happening that way. Or is there something about that in the way the episode gets marketed by Spotify, by Apple, by Mm -hmm. by the algorithm? So I'm always curious, too, about like how the algorithm works and like, you know, what you like and what you share and what you comment on is what's going to most often you know, come up next. So I know there's analytics to that too. I'm curious what, what you've experienced on your show with pop culture makes me jealous 
which guests or which topics. Like, I'm curious how far your analytics, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm oh, curious no, how totally that. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> totally fine. Actually, our most downloaded episode is the Malcolm Jamal Warner. We appreciate oh, you. Yes. And that makes me so happy because Nikki is a very dear friend of mine. She's the guest on that show. We've been friends since 1998. <laughs> nice. And so, and then two, because I feel like literally the world does not appreciate Malcolm Jamal Warner in the way that, that he deserves to be appreciated. So that when that, that is consistently getting downloads every month, that makes me really happy. But in terms of like trying to find the audience, it's, you know, not as easy because we're talking, pop culture is already a very saturated market as it is, right? There's so many angles. There's so many people in the conversation. There's not a lot of black women in the conversation though. I mean, you have magazine, you have the big magazines that kind of touch on it. And thank you, Tyler Perry, for like giving us a whole bunch of content. At the same time, when you look at some of like the bigger magazines and the newspapers that are pumping out pop culture information, when you look up the journalist that's writing about it, predominantly white. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's some women in there, but they're predominantly white. Mm -hmm. And there's like a handful in comparison. I wish I had the number off the top of my head, but statistics wise, you know, it's a very low population of people who are considered, you know, people of color and marginalized that are writing about it. And that really bothers me because you're not going to change the way that representation looks if you don't have people who look like us saying, hey, please stop saying ghetto as a bad term. That's not okay. Yes. Yeah. Or like, please don't do that. Like I, I struggle with single mom narratives sometimes because sometimes they show them as these hot steaming messes. Yes, I'm a hot steaming mess today. Tomorrow I had my, sh- I'm going to have my shit together. Like, can we like show the spectrum of how emotionally draining it is without it looking like she can't function? <laughs> yeah. There's been single moms since forever forever and so like why does it have to be this one you're right the spectrum of what that is yeah and then when you go a little bit further and you have a black single parent and then how they make it look just so I mean yes the numbers are there there's a lot of poverty there's a lot of single parents in poverty but at the same time to tie it back to the Huxtables that was the first time I saw on television outside of the Jeffersons where you had black professionals that was my family they were black professionals and sure we didn't have a ton of money but they weren't people who were working in like I don't know we didn't have we didn't have a janitor I mean maybe there was in the extended family I don't know but in the immediate family it was very much like we have Good jobs that if you have a college degree, you're going to elevate in your career. And that's true for my dad. That was true for that's his story. And so to tie it back to the podcast, when we have conversations like you, I'm mindful about who I bring on as guests because mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, you know, we've had enough white guys talk about Black Widow. <laughs> Y'all didn't get it. So we're going to show up and talk about it from the female perspective because that's what we need. You know, I don't really care about your opinion about Scarlett Johansson's performance, dude. Like, you're not a woman. Thank you for your opinion. It's time to move on. And so I've noticed that it has been harder to find my audience because we are always talking about some sort of race or gender issue on the show. And I don't know why that's harder because there's tons of maybe it's the saturated market. I don't know. But our analytics in comparison to the other accounts I run for other agencies are really, really sad. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, this is like our opportunity to share it with more people because like, like I said in the beginning, I was kind of like, they're going to talk about the show, the whole thing. And it's, it's not really, I would say like 75% of the content is your conversation with the guest about what it brings up in the larger issue yeah, um, and the TV show or the movie is just that jumping off point. It's and the it's, vehicle. Yeah, and it's the nostalgia for me too, right? Because I keep going back to look for old things. Like we were yeah. joking uh, the other day, like say anything was oh like my, gosh. my favorite. That along with like anything else that John Hughes did. Yes, I love, oh my <laughs> Megan, are you telling me right now that you are willing to be my reoccurring guest when I analyze John Hughes? <laughs> Yes! Oh my gosh. Although that music is like in my head. It's also influenced by the fact that my sister is seven years older. And so she would babysit me and whatever she was watching, I was watching. So I watched wildly inappropriate stuff. I mean, 
<laughs> a seven-year-old shouldn't be watching 16 candles but i sure as shit did right that's exactly that's exactly what happened oh my gosh pretty in pink Oh, um, it was on tv the other day i was like yes thank you how did you know i needed this right now yeah there's all that and so much of the when i started getting into um late high school and early college it was like then i went on this spike lee bent and i was like watching everything directed by spike yeah. lee and i was just like i haven't watched a spike lee film in forever he had the one last year a, the, the military a spike one. lee joint a spike mm-hmm. lee joint <laughs> yeah all these moments that are they're just so um, pivotal that are they're part of pop culture. They're defined mm-hmm. by pop culture. Um, pop culture creates these these. Moments. Bye, Felicia. Hello. Yeah. I mean, by Felicia. Like people will say that to me. I'm like, have you seen Friday? And they're like, what's Friday? I'm like, mm, mm-hmm. We're done here. You are not allowed to use that phrase anymore. Bye. Yes. <laughs> so BET reruns Friday all the time. Get yourself a subscription to the BE channel and do yourself a favor and watch Friday. <laughs> All of those phrases, actually, that's an interesting point in in social media, too, that I'm curious about as people saying, like, you know, stop using digital blackface because. Oh, my gosh. Like the, the gifts, right, and emoticons that are like, you know, these comical depictions of black culture. And it's sort of like, I feel OK using them. But what does yeah. it mean when somebody who's not of that culture using them, you know, that form of appropriation. Yeah. I have to admit when, you know, we started having emoticons and emojis and whatnot. And the first time a very, very waspy friend used the very dark thumbs up emoji when we were having a conversation. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it hit weird. Cause it's like, I don't, I don't understand. Like we waited so long to get skin tones for us. <laughs> why are you using it? Like that was my reaction because we didn't have different skin tones for so long. And then they finally released a curly hair girl emoji like right before the pandemic. And I was like, thank you. We waited so long. So it's kind of like we wait so long to be recognized and then you're using it. Like it's not you. You've had it. You've had yours from the jump. Let us have ours. (laughs) But so, but I'm like, you know, I don't know, because that conversation of pop culture coming into it, whereas somebody pulls a a gif of somebody doing something from, you know, from Friday or like Stanley from The Office is another big one that people send back and forth. It, I struggle because it's like, well, I mean, this is an appropriate use of Stanley because we all feel that way. Did I stutter? No, I did not. <laughs> tell me about. OK, tell me about the poll. Of the office. I've watched like one, maybe one and a half episodes. And one of my daughters is obsessed. Like she watches it constantly. And I couldn't, maybe I didn't watch enough episodes, but I feel like anytime I say that to people, they're like, what do you mean you don't like, or you don't watch the office? And I'm like, ah, I feel like I need to run from the room and bury my head in shame. It's but- not for everybody. You're not alone. <laughs> I've met plenty of people who do not care for the office. For me, it's comfort in the background like i've had a hard day i'm gonna put on the office and just let it run (laughs) michael scott's a moron we know that he's like there's an episode where they're gonna play the warehouse the office workers are gonna play the warehouse workers in a basketball game and he says to stanley stanley's on my team obviously and stanley's like why obviously Oh, no. You know, so he does dumb stuff like that through the entire series. And it just is like he's the guy that you're he's like the manifestation of everything that you've been through as a non-white person. <laughs> but Mindy Kaling's amazing. She was one of the writers on that show and she's just incredible. And she's just so stinking funny. And I think that was part of the cell was just like, yeah, you got a brown girl writing on the show. I got, yes. Oh, maybe I need to give it some more episodes. And I think I only got like two in and I was just like getting offended. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I'm not easily offended. But I was no, like, but the show could not exist now because there's another episode where what, they, they are roasting Michael. They're doing like the comedy central roast style situation for Michael. And he says something where you're just like, no, you could not produce a TV show like with that. I forget specifically what it was that he said, but it's just like, oh, that's you can't do that. Can't do like, that anymore. We've evolved. We've evolved from that. But because it takes place in 2005, we can just rewatch it all the time. 
That's true. That is true. So tell me about how Blackish, Mixedish, and what's the other one? There's a third one. Grownish. Yeah, Grown-ish. Grownish have. Trans- I mean, I and I was told you before offline that I'm not even quite done with Blackish. I'm on the last season, and somebody, I think it was actually my daughter, my eldest daughter, sent me her Instagram years ago and was like. I think this is like your real life twin virtual yes. celebrity best friend. And I'm like, I looked at this. I'm like, yes. And so every probably 10 posts she does. I'm like, hi, <laughs> it's me. Please be my best friend. Like, I just love her so much. And I, we're a similar in age. I'm not exactly sure how old she is. Um, I think she's like a couple years older than you. Okay. But we're, yeah, we're think, close in age. And I feel like yeah, we sort of grew up at the same time, but it was mm-hmm. before you know, super internet and definitely before social media. I'm like, if only I'd known you when I was growing up, but she's changed the game for me because she's like out there doing all that stuff. And I realize there's a good chunk of America who looks at her. They're just like, yeah, she's black. Like she's African-American without recognizing that her dad is white and also Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, that she, you know, she has this famous mom, Diana Ross, but she was like a huge turning point for me in terms of seeing somebody who looks like you and represents you. And, you know, I was born in Bermuda, but raised in Canada and then moved to California. But the first time I went back to Bermuda and I would get stopped on the street regularly at the airport, everywhere I went where people are like, are you related to so-and-so? And everybody there looks like me and I look like everybody else. And I'd never had that oh my experience gosh. before anywhere. And someone told me once, you know, psychologically, when you're surrounded by, like, it's not just online, but like in community, like in your life, when you're surrounded by people who look like you, it's incredibly validating. So then to yeah. see somebody who's like famous, right? So there's mm-hmm. like Halle Berry, I feel like, you know, I learned about first and then yeah. Tracy Ellis Ross. But anyway, what's that impact been on you in terms of you personally, but also with pop culture makes me jealous and yeah, in your life? I love blackish probably a little too much (laughs) (laughs) when it first launched one of the trailers was rainbow johnson and andre johnson so rainbow's tracy ellis ross and andre is anthony anderson and they're talking and she's like getting ready for bed and he's like babe you're not even like that black and she's like can somebody tell my hair and my ass that and i was like i'm sorry were you listening in on a conversation i just had like a couple weeks ago because like damn spot on like mm -hmm, yep and so for people who are familiar with tracy ellis ross you know she's like you say diana ross's daughter one of six i think and she did a show in the early 2000s called girlfriends it's currently on netflix i encourage everybody to watch it because it's amazing but we didn't have like she wasn't playing a mixed race woman on girlfriends i don't think if memory serves no she so she's always been playing black women which fabulous get it girl but for her to finally be in a role to play both not just you know a black woman but also a white like a woman who has white experience too and just to kind of have that both and the way that she has to toe the line between the two especially because she grew up hippy dippy which mixed dish really gets into and even though my parents were conservative christians there was definitely like an earthy element to my parents that was just kind of like it feels contradictory, but like, it's not, trust me. And so to see her, and then when they brought in, oh my gosh, Megan, <laughs> when they first introduced her siblings, David Diggs, who is just fabulous. And for those of you who are listening, who don't know who he is, he is an original cast member in Hamilton. And he, I think he played Thomas Jefferson. If oh my serves. God, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then and then he also has done a ton of other stuff, too. Like he um, did this movie called Blind Spotting. It's based in Oakland. And then they've stars recently picked that up and did a TV show. Same name, but took some of the characters from that movie and pulled them into this TV show. My friend Nikki, same woman, and I have very different opinions. So that's going to be a fun conversation. But they bring in Rashida Jones as Santa Monica, the younger sister. And I used to always tell people, I'm Rashida Jones Black. <laughs> And then they brought Rashida Jones in to play the little sister. And I was like, 
listen, I don't know if my apartment's bugged, but we've got, like, I'm here for it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for bringing Santa Monica and letting her be Rashida Jones. So watching them be this sort of, they're very diverse when you think about it. Cause you know, Andre is very big on like, I'm from Compton and I'm hella black. And then Tracy Ellis Ross, like Rainbow's like, yeah, cool. So great. Also, I'm black, but also there's all these other things. And it's just very fun in the first two seasons watching their dynamic, especially when they bring her parents on. Mm -hmm. So great. And then when Mixtus showed up, we were like, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? It's based in the 80s. What does this mean for us? OMG, what are we going to do? And then my sister and I were just like, this is the best show ever. Like, seriously, did they follow us around with, like, all those home movies dad made? Did they borrow them to get content? Because... Holy Moses. Again, minus the hippie commune that they were raised on. But still, there were so many things about that show where it was just like, gosh, like, yes, this who you clearly hired mixed people to write this show because (laughs) this is so spot on that Mm -hmm. it just feels like you were spying on us big time. And I did love the way that they spun off Grownish because I when. Blackish came on air. I was like, this feels like a modern day Huxtables to me. You've got a black family. They have good jobs. They're college educated. They have these kids. They have the privilege of wealth, but they still have other hurdles in life that they have to go through. And we get to see that with them, just like like the Huxtables didn't really dive deeply into hurdles on being mm-hmm. black. They sort of ignored that. But not, I don't think that was on purpose. I think that was just, that was the 80s, you know, it's Reagan era. What are you going to do? And so to see Zoe move off into college and to follow her, it just felt like, is this modern, a different world? OMG. (laughs) Like, yes, I want to follow Zoe. I didn't go off to college. I stayed, not on purpose. It just, things didn't work out in my life and I didn't go off to college. So watching Zoe go off to college, it felt like I got, that experience with her rather than with Denise it was you know something to aspire to with Zoe it was this is what I missed out on and I just love watching her fumble and I love watching her trying to come into her own and I think that for a person whose life is very different from theirs there's still so many things that are really impactful and I love that they're not afraid to dive deeply it's actually why Kenyon Burris and Disney was it ABC parted ways they had an episode about kneeling and Disney shelved it or ABC shelved it and Kenny Burst was like you can't and that kind of cut ties between them and the mm-hmm. show did shift a little bit after he left but I think that the essence is still there and I think Anthony Anderson and Tracy Ellis Ross have done a really good job of keeping that ship going in the direction that it needs to go in so that way that conversation can keep happening yeah, and I important. yeah say and I was gonna say and I think that you and Tracy Ellis Ross totally could be like separated at birth <laughs> You don't know this, but you're my long lost sister and best friend. Yeah. Please just acknowledge my comment. Yeah. <laughs> Along with the 35,000 other people who've commented on your She's post. She's so famous. It's wild. And I'm like, yes, girl, get it. <laughs> so bringing it back to you as we kind of start to lean towards wrap up, but I could talk to you for another <laughs> two hours. Um, and we had a good chat before this too. And we, we talk every week. We have like a, a secret club on the weekends. Yes. But for future thought leader, what is Julia Washington working on in terms of your future thought leader goals, like for you, for the podcast, for your life, for your family? What are some of the the pivot points ahead? Oh, my gosh, I keep using that word. I know everybody hates pivot now because 2020 forced us to pivot and everything. But I I think it can be a good thing. It's just like, and I'm here and now I got to go here. So where is future thought leader Julia pivoting to next. There was a point in the podcast where I felt like we were getting away from the mission, really just diving into, you know, the recent racial and gender issues that still exist within entertainment. And so future thought leader brought me back to the core and then has forced me to really think about what it is I want to put out there and be more mindful of that. And so We wrapped up season one, and since then, I've been very mindful about what kind of research we're doing, what topics we're bringing up, and we're always going to try and dissect something through that that lens, whether it's the feminist theory lens or critical race lens. 
Sometimes we're not always going to do that because we are going to, you know, there are some points where I'm just like a stupid teenager and I still just need to talk about 10 things they hate about you, regardless of race and gender. (laughs) Um, But it's very important to me to bring more people to the table to have these conversations in a safe space. And and we, we use safe space so much, right? Like it's so overused, but there's a lot of fear when it comes to trying to understand why someone's different from you. And so if we can wrap it in a TV show that we both appreciated or a movie that we both felt connected to in some way, and then can break down some of those barriers through that topic, then I've done my job. And so with future thought leader, I'm trying really I'm an introvert. I know that you and I can talk forever and it doesn't feel like I could be an introvert, but I'm going to tell you right now, I am totally happy staying in my house, never talking to people ever, ever again. And so I'm forcing myself to be out there talking about these things to remove my own personal fear about my racial identity. It's no one else's business. I'm sorry that you can't figure out what, in air quotes, I am. That's not my problem. And I need to stop and I'm starting to get stronger in not letting that derail me every day, every day, every week, every day. You know, it just depends. And I'm trying to be more mindful about how I frame those conversations with people on my podcast. These things can kind of get run wild and I want to be I need it to be okay for us to acknowledge that we're still ignorant in so many ways. And creating that space where we can have that conversation still like express an ignorance and then work through it. Because I think there's no room for that on the internet. We say that there is, but there's not. Mm. And that, you know, it, there's so many things I'm naive about. And I, I need to learn and I need to do the work. But at some point, I'm going to run out of Google. I need somebody with lived experience to help me understand the knowledge and experiences that are out there that I've read about. Like, I need context now. I don't know if this hasn't come up before, but I did go to, I do have a master's degree in creative writing, which everyone's always like, that's cute. How are you going to (laughs) eat? And so, yeah. (laughs) And so part of my focus in grad school was representation in literature. And in that study, I realized, like I said, there's so much fear in this conversation of figuring out why we're different and why it's okay and why it's not okay and all of the angles about it. So Family's class helped me realize this is the way for me to apply everything I learned in grad school. Yes, it was a creative writing degree, but all of the focus and the theories that I studied within those writing programs, this is how I'm going to apply. Oh, and you know, it just popped into my head when you said that is Bridgerton. So (gasps) I hadn't heard of it. And last Christmas, my daughter broke the internet. this mom you need to watch this show and I'm like what is this and I'm like oh I'm telling you I think I finished it in like three days like nice you know we were and I'm just and there was such an uproar right of people yeah. saying but this isn't factual and I'm like yeah but this is what representation also looks like and this has mm-hmm. also been done by like a fellow for how many Oh uh, thousands of years yes. right we're like like that's the, the the big comparison right that white actors have very often played that role with dark makeup mm-hmm. and I was just sort of like to me that's a no-brainer but I know I'm approaching it from a very different point of view like people who are really up in arms about it but it comes back to that representation like mm-hmm. no one's saying this is a factual piece this is a story right. that was written by somebody about this particular it's a novel like it's right. not <laughs> you know right it's a romance novel none of y'all were gonna find that anyway because it's in the romance section and we are all embarrassed to go into the romance <laughs> section <laughs> Yes. And I wanted to say the creative, like a master's in creative writing is Mm -hmm. amazing. That's another thing we have in common. It's what I've always wanted to do from when I was a kid and people were like, you can't do that. You can't survive on that or whatever, (laughs) but, but you can like, and no education goes unwasted. So all of that is definitely informing what you're doing now. My kids make fun of me too, because they'll be like, you make everything about race and and I'm like, well, because kind of everything is like it comes up, especially when when you're the person who feels like you're on the outside of it. Like you start to see those patterns and you studying that in literature shows you the history of, of what that has been and then how that's informed pop culture now. Yes. And it was really hard because, again, not a lot of black people in my program. And so we read Beloved and here I am coming at Beloved from coming from a black experience to an extent because I'm not like 
I'm not dark, mm-hmm. <laughs> as I mentioned earlier. But, you know, I always, I cannot remove my grandmother and my aunt from these stories, these, like, historical context stories, these historical fiction, whatever. I can't remove them from it. It doesn't matter what time period it is. We have enough family members identified throughout our history up until 1864 that, you know, I'm I, there's a name there in that era. So I'm coming at Beloved from the point of, like, I literally have an ancestor who this is probably their experience. And my group just didn't get it and not made me feel bad, but basically told me I was stupid with for the way that not saying not for not saying I'm stupid, but implying it for the way that I was coming at it because I was coming at it from, you know, we know that trauma is passed down genetically. We know all these things now. And that's where I was coming from. And they were just diminishing my point of view. And it was just like, okay, go ahead. You go ahead and know everything. That's fine. I just, you know, <laughs> don't know how far back my family goes. Thanks. <laughs> and I mean, I hate to keep pulling that card sometimes, but it that is a big deal because for some people, if you've ever watched Henry Louis Gates Jr. does Finding Your Roots on PBS. And when you watch that show and he has guests on that are not that were never really a part of the, their people weren't owned. I don't know how, I was like, they weren't slaves. Right. Um, it's so much easier for him to find their lineage and to find direct, you know, ancestors and what have you. But when he has ethnic people on, it's <laughs> the wrong yes. word. When he has people of color on, yeah. he, it, they hit a point where he can't go anymore and he has to turn to DNA. Like that, if that doesn't hurt your heart, then what is going on? Because if you don't know where you came from, then how do you even fully know who you are? Like, because the longer you you know, the more it's solidified. Like, you know, that term, I don't hear it as much anymore, but when I was growing up, like blue bloods, yeah, like people came over on the Mayflower. There are families in the United States who can trace their families back to like Christopher Columbus's first ship. Like they can. And those are the people who've had the longest amount of time, like 400, years to build up wealth and identity and land all of that is all of those things major it's not just ethnic and cultural it's also like about generational wealth and like a solid identity and yep in that and not everybody has that it is a luxury and it is a privilege to know and have that go so far back and not have that splice in your line like you said Mm -hmm. literally they have to look at dna and you know i've done the 23andme test as well and it's been mind-blowing like absolutely mind-blowing my dad did his megan and i totaled up the totals one day and i was like dad this only totals like 70 percent, so like 30 percent of you is missing (laughs) (laughs) but what was so it's it is so fascinating because now we have our it didn't go all the way back to where like your origins where it hits your origins like this is the country in which you probably are Yes, it was, um, I'm like 0.08% unidentified at this point, but they send me like a, so it's like whatever, (laughs) 99.2. So they send me an update every few months with like new genetic tests because I wanted health information. I didn't grow up knowing anything about my father's side of the family at all. And a lot of them have uh, died really young. And so I was kind of like, what's going on over there? My mother's family though, which is why we can trace back to like the 1800s in Europe. Yeah, my my mom's side of the family too. She did, uh, she got really into the family tree and we've got, we've got some Italians all the way back from Charlemagne's era that I'm just like, cool, this this is, this is great. Like, cool. Like this part of my lineage Mm -hmm. is solid. Those Italians, they can't, you can't get rid of them. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Like, but like my dad's side of the family, it's kind of like, Lots of question marks for him, especially because only 70% came back. Right. But it did give us our country of origin, which was the what is now known as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Oh. And I actually have a friend who is from there, born there, spent the first like seven or eight years of his life there and then moved to Paris before they moved to the Central Valley, which why would you move from? Yeah. I don't know. I know friends has a, a lot of some race race issues, too, but. I asked him when we got it back, I was like, can I claim being from the Democratic Republic of Congo, too, if that's where, like, my genes literally began? And he's like, 100% you can. Welcome, sister. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that felt so good. Like, I have people. Yeah. Oh, so important. Previous guest, um, Gule Kaboto, two episodes back, three episodes back, she's from South Africa. And she's a love activist. And so she she was telling us about 
you know, what that means to her. It's a healing journey. But one of the things she said on that call to me was like in South Africa, where she's from, they worry about us here because they're like, you're the stolen people that (sighs) were brought here. And like, you've lost your roots, you've lost your family, you've lost your identity. And so they, her fundamental belief, I don't want to say they for everybody, but the way Mm -hmm. she was speaking was, we believe there's a fundamental mother wound from people who were like, torn from this place implanted somewhere else and you're like kind of lost now and so they they want that connection to for us to not necessarily go back to live but have that sense of place as coming from the continent of africa wherever that may be Mm -hmm. but she said it's like it's pretty universal and so for her coming on the podcast with you know someone who's in america was a step towards healing that wound. So like getting out that your friend said, yes, absolutely claim it. I get, she would say that too. She was like, yeah, the more, the more you can know and the more you can find out, the more you can reclaim that, that part of yourself. That's yeah. I love that. And that is so powerful. Oh my gosh. At the end of the day, we just all want to be safe, loved and wanted. And part of that is knowing where you're from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Oh, Julia. <laughs> I feel like we could talk forever. We could. We totally could. Maybe we'll just have to have you come back on. We can check in later in the year or early 2022 and I would love that. How things are going with you. But yeah, we can we can round out and I'll be pumping the heck out of this episode with you and listening to more of Pop culture makes me jealous and enjoying future thought leader with you, um, which is a weekly group we belong to that we meet every Tuesday with with family. So encouraging listeners to find out more about that. It's so, so empowering and such a supportive group of like minded souls who are, you know, they're all feminists. They're all for equality of all of the things LGBTQ and working primarily in the diversity and inclusion sphere, but there's everything from people working corporately to like myself working in yoga and social media and same with our friend Tammy, who was a previous guest on the show, just uh, one episode before this one, as well as Julia. So we'll round things out for today. I want to thank Julia for being a part of this episode today. I hope everybody's really enjoyed hearing from her. She's a lot of fun and I encourage you to, to listen to her podcast for a lot of fun. You know, we listen to so much news these days and there's there's a lot of devastating things going on in the world and, and we don't ignore that or pretend it doesn't exist. But it's really nice to like have some deeper discussions about fun things too. So Pop Culture Makes Me Jealous is available on all streaming platforms. They've also got an Instagram channel with the same name. So encourage you to check in there. And I want to thank Wanda Abney for being the editor of this podcast as well as freesound.org that provides our intro and outro music for this by independent artists who are so generous with their gifts. And until next time, my friends, keep listening closely and expanding exponentially because at Maya, it's always a great time for your mind to be on the mat.